But oh man, here we are again. It's baseball 1911. We got the big Sunday paper, and already I am seeing good things. I am seeing uh, what looks like a preview of all of our American League teams, uh, which, hey, anything, this is before there was any sort of all-encompassing media. There aren't, like, real movies yet. They're like stage shows and vaudevilles and circuses, but, uh, you know, I suppose in 1911 there were little cinemas that showed the little short diversions but movie, the, the pop culture is at a very primal state. And uh, I have even, uh, because of the way copyright works, music from 1911, uh, recordings are not copyrighted. So uh, I am thinking at some point during this excursion, uh, it, since it's a Sunday, and this is going to be big, uh, this is going to be a long episode uh, with lots of uh, what I hope is, and boy, Walter Johnson, as you would imagine, is still uh, at the top of everybody's uh, mind and news. Uh, although, again, this is a young Walter Johnson. This isn't, I mean, I'm thinking of the old guy and he's a Hall of Famer, but he's like 26 or 27 years old now. So he's, this, this is prime, even a little before his prime, maybe. So uh, there's that. Let's, let's take a look here. And the uh, headline right at the top, uh, and, and Sunday Star, the newspaper out of Washington, D.C., we have switched over to mostly, I mean, we are going to use that New York evening sun to keep up with the Giants and uh, the Yankees or whatever they're calling themselves. Seems to depend on the newspaper. But uh, the big headline here is, St. Louis Club makes bid for Walter Johnson. Offer is turned down. Hedger's first club owner to try to get Johnson. President Noyes wires emphatic refusal to deal and makes clear. Club's position must play here or not at all. Uh, by J. Ed Grillo. As was to be expected, the news of Walter Johnson having been sent home had no sooner been sent throughout the country than some of the other club owners in the American League got busy and started hitting the wires for information regarding a trade or sale of Johnson. One of these reached here yesterday from Robert Lee Hedges, the St. Louis owner. I am assuming St. Louis rounds that he was willing to come on here for a conference Tuesday. He thought he could make a favorable trading proposition or do business in a cash basis. President Noyes reply to Hedges will leave no doubt in the St. Louis magnate's mind as to what disposition the local club will make of Johnson. He was informed that there was absolutely no chance to trade for or buy Johnson and it was couched in emphatic words. Walter Johnson will remain the property of the Washington Club so long as there is a Washington Club 
and such a thing as organized baseball prevails, said President Noyes. We will neither trade nor sell him. He has been fairly dealt with by this club, and he will play for it or not at all. That is final, and rival club owners who make an effort to get him from us are merely wasting their time. By adopting this policy, which is not unlike the fellow who bit off his nose to spite his face, the club may suffer financial loss, for there is no doubt that Johnson would bring a fortune if put on the market or would command some brilliant material in a trade, but it would be contrary to the policy of the present owners of the club to enter into such a transaction because it might shake the confidence which the local followers of the game have in the men or promoting baseball in this city. For many years, the Washington Club was conducted for no other purpose than to develop ball players for other clubs in the circuit. No effort was made to get a winner here, but the public did not object when the club was finally taken away from the city. But under present regime, a new state of affairs is in vogue. To trade or sell Johnson would start the rumor among the uninitiative that the entire holding out of Johnson and squabble over salary was nothing more than a frame-up to pass the player over to some other club in a larger city where his drawing proclivities could be worked to better advantage. The Washington Club does not propose to uh, lay itself open to such criticism, and Walter Johnson will pitch here, or remain on his farm. There was also a rumor that Connie Mack had made a proposition for Johnson, but President Noyes had not heard of it. But no matter what the offers may be or who may make them, Johnson will neither be traded nor sold. Mack would stand less chance than any of his rivals for the reason that he already has a team which looks as if it would make a runaway of the next race, and to give him Johnson would kill the interest in the race. Before noon today, the Nationals, after spending 35 days at Atlanta, will return here preparatory to opening the season of 1911 Wednesday next, when they have the Boston Red Sox for their opponents. Were it not for the unfortunate Stan Walter Johnson, the team's star pitcher, has taken on the salary question. No team that has ever represented this city in the American League would have brighter prospects than the one which Jim McAleer has been getting fit at Atlanta. The absence of Johnson naturally places a big handicap on the team's chances, and yet, though he will be greatly missed, his comrades on the pitching staff give indications of doing much more than they have heretofore. So far as the players being in condition is concerned, there is nothing further to be hoped for. Every man is reported fit to do his best work right from the outset, and this will be quite a change over the conditions which prevailed last spring. The team will have two days to spend here before the season opens, and these will be put in at hard work, providing, of course, the weather conditions are favorable. The local field will be in readiness by Monday, so that if the weather permits, the team can virtually keep up the training pace it is set while in the South. While no definite selection has been made as to which pitcher will work opening day, 
it is a pretty safe guess that Dolly Gray, the team's premier left-hander, will be selected. That Boston club is made up of a lot of left-handed hitters, and going on the theory that a left-hander, when facing a left-hander, is handicapped, Gray is the logical man to oppose him now that Walter Johnson is not available. The rest of the team will be made up, as have the regulars in the South for the past few weeks, with Henry on first base and the same outfield which inaugurated this season here last April. Though the new stands at the ballpark are far from completed and won't be until the Nationals return from their first Western trip in May, there will be more accommodations there Wednesday than have ever existed on a local park. It is estimated there will be a seating capacity for about 14,000. The left and right field pavilions will not furnish the seats that will eventually be placed there, but under the circumstances, no one will have any complaint coming on that score. Temporary chairs will be placed in the grandstand, while the old bleachers in right field are still intact. There will be over 700 box seats available, and these will go on sale at Spaulding's and White's Tuesday morning. Work on the stands will cease Monday morning, when the work of cleaning up for the opening game will begin. Considering that it was only three weeks from Friday that the old stands were destroyed, the work accomplished is most remarkable. A grandstand, which seats three times as many as did the old and is of solid concrete and steel, has taken the place of the old frame structure, while two pavilions have been completed of concrete and wood, the latter a temporary structure. All this has been accomplished in a little over three weeks. John Henry can keep up the pace he has set in the South. Patrons of the game here will see a most improved ball player in the young collegian. The very uh, fact that he has been selected to play first base in the opening game proves him to have made a splendid impression with manager McAleer. Of course, he may change when the regular battles start, but no one who has seen him perform believes that Henry will fail to keep up the clip. To begin with, he is as game as a pebble and fears no one. Oh, is that a great term? Game as a pebble. And fears no one. Yeah. Crowds do not affect him, and besides having not lots of natural ability, he likes the game. In fact, he has everything that goes to make a great ball player, and he should develop into one rapidly. Now that Johnson is no longer on the staff, it is up to the fans here to develop a man who can come somewhere near to taking his place. Such a man is a member of the local pitching staff, but the proper encouragement needs but the proper encouragement to bring him to the front. The pitcher referred to as Bob Groom. Criticisms of Groom, because of his nervous actions, have frequently appeared in these columns. They were made in the hope that the tall pitcher would be shown the errors of his way and mend them. But the system does not apply to Groom. He cannot stand up under criticism so that encouragement should be given a trial in his case. There is no pitcher with more natural ability than the Belleville boy. That is saying a good deal, but any competent baseball man will express a similar view. Groom's fault is that he heeds that which crowds say to him. He is extremely sensitive, and it is this fact which has prevented him from being one of the leading pitchers in the league.
Groom will make a great pitcher if the fans will help him. Let his mistakes go by unnoticed a few times so that he will get confidence and Groom will be a winner. In the game Friday, for instance, he started poorly, hitting two men and walking three more. But there was no crowd there to worry him, and he steadied down and allowed the regulars but four scattered hits. Groom has the ability, and it is to be hoped for the benefit of his team, which under existing condition needs every ounce of pitching strength that it can be gotten out of him, as Groom is the one man who gives promise of doing much more to fill the hole which Johnson's absence has created. There is no material change in the outlook for McAleer's outfield. It is the same trail which filled the position's last spring, and of the lot, Milan is the only certainty. One hope is that Gessler and Lelevelt will show improved form. They have themselves in perfect playing condition, and while it is true they have not been setting things afire in the South, they have shown enough to warrant manager McAleer playing them at the start of the season. Neither of these players is an early beginner. They need a few games of the right kind to get them going properly, so that it will be several days before a correct line on their ability will be had. McAleer proposes to give them a fair trial. He will not take snap judgment and replace either of them with one of the several youngsters he is carrying. It stands to reason that much develops on how Gessler and Lelevelt hit. If their batting is around the 300 mark this season, the Nationals are sure to finish higher in the race than they did last season. The Boston Red Sox, with several old faces missing, will arrive here either Monday night or Tuesday morning, ready for the opening game. Jake Stahl, who, though he was kidded a good deal here, was one of the most valuable men on that team, is among the absent, having retired from the game. Lord and McConnell, two of the team's stars last spring, joined the White Sox during the past season. This trio was always prominent in the games, and the team played here, and they are sure to be missed, but not without any regrets of the local patrons. Whether Boston has secured men to take their places remains to be seen, and the series here should prove this one way or the other. Connie Mack is always doing something different. His pitchers run the game. The catchers, the athletic catchers, signal the pitchers the same as the pitchers on other teams. But the pitcher's judgment goes when the pitcher and catcher do not agree on the kind of ball to use. Two or three other managers instruct their catchers to rely on the judgment of veteran pitchers all. Max pitchers have the final say. Take the pitcher's judgment was an early season order from manager Mack, and he never changed it, said Patty Livingston, athletic catcher. Chief Bender and Eddie Plank used their own judgment the season before last and did so well. The rule was made general. Everybody must use his head is one of Connie's rules. One advantage of the pitcher's judgment counting is in the help he gets from the infielders. Our infielders were the pitcher's advisors. They watched the batters as closely as the battery men. That was part of their work. Connie doesn't count a stolen base on the catcher. It is between the pitcher and catcher. No catcher can get a base runner who is allowed too much of a lead is the way Connie puts it. 
There was never a call down for the pitcher or catcher when Connie believed a fastball should have been used instead of a curve or vice versa. We were expected to know what to do. Advice came before or after games, and then it was up to both pitcher and catcher. Mac does a lot of things different from other managers I have played for. Every man on the team has his ear when a suggestion is offered. We are all called upon to dig up something at daily dope meetings. Getting the dope on all of the opposition, I guess. that That's a good term. Dope, unfortunately, kind of got ruined by... um. The drug trade, but you know, dope just used to just mean information or a stupid person. Yeah, you dope. Uh, it must not be supposed that the cause of the breach between the club and Johnson was caused by the thousand dollar difference in the salary offered and the one demanded for the season. It is not the difference between sixty five hundred and seventy five hundred that caused Johnson to go home. The mere acceding. To Johnson's terms for this year would not settle the matter by any means, for Johnson has given notice that he will expect raises for the next two years so as to bring his salary in the aggregate up to 27000 for the next three seasons. That would mean the club has to get ready to pay him 19500 for the two seasons following the coming one. It was at the prospect of having to buckle down to that proposition that the club balked. Johnson is a great picture, and may have the making of the greatest the game has ever produced, but he values his services too highly. Johnson promises to become a famous holdout, but if he is at all superstitious, he will abandon his stand, for if history should repeat itself, his career will start on a downgrade from the time he kicks over the traces. For example, John Kling was in a class by himself until he held out and remained idle for a year. He did not come back last season and is only mentioned casually now. George Stone held out one spring, and a year later he dropped into the minor leagues. Nothing like this may happen to Johnson, but it is well worth considering while he has hours for thought down on the farm. To the uninitiated, it seems unfair that a ball player can be kept out of baseball unless he accepts the term his club is willing to pay him. And yet when the facts of the matter are squarely dissected, it becomes plain that it is because of these conditions alone that baseball has developed into one of the biggest enterprises in the country which pays its exponents princely salaries. Were baseball signed for but... Were baseball players signed for but a single season or two and could go where they pleased at the end of the term of their contract, it would be but a year or two when large cities like New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia would harbor all the stars because clubs in those cities could afford to outbid their smaller rivals. The result would be lopsided circuits and loss of interest, such a thing as minor leagues, where the great stars are developed, would be out of the question because the annual raids made on these clubs would eat up their profits. Organized baseball does not work a hardship on the ball players by reason of the clause in the contracts which give the club a continuous claim on the player's service. 
This clause, known as the reserve clause, has been the salvation of the game and the ballplayers. By reason of its existence, baseball has been placed on a substantial footing. Millions are now invested in the game, while the salaries of ballplayers have increased over 200% in the last 12 years. It is not long ago when the greatest players in the game could not possibly draw more than $2,400 for the season. That was the limit. When one And when one year, Kelly, Jennings, McGraw, and Keeler held out for 2700 and finally one wonders were thought to have been accomplished. Today, those four players would draw something like 30000 between them every season. That is what the clause in the contract, which gives the club the players' services for the... Yeah, there's a lot of smudging there, but I think we get the message. The whole bottom of that column is one big smudge. McAleer's men break camp, leave Atlanta for home, team in good condition for opening game with Boston. Milan, Mrs. Johnson, expects him to report later. Uh, this is another special dispatch, April 8th, Atlanta, with the United States Secret Service official on the train to see that no harm befalls him en route to the way, in the way of a black hand plot or an assassination. The Washington Americans left Atlanta at 2.52 o'clock this afternoon on Southern Train Number 30 for Washington after spending five weeks in Atlanta in spring training. The train was scheduled to leave here at 2.45, but some trouble with the equipment caused a delay of seven minutes in leaving. If the train is on time, the team will arrive in Washington Sunday at 10.30 o'clock. Wow, yeah, just seven minutes. The, the, the trains used to, I guess they still do pretty much, but uh, the last time I knew about Amtrak, I mean, maybe in the big cities it runs on time, but uh, those little stations along the way it can get iffy. It was fortunate that the train was a few minutes late, or the senators would have probably been without the services of their trainer and first aid to the injured Joe Quirk. Joe came busting down to the station promptly at 2.45 o'clock with a grip in each hand and a checkerboard tucked under his arm, said board being kept out for the purpose of amusement during the trip. The same checkerboard was what caused Joe to nearly miss connections. He hunted high and low for it and could not find it, and when he did, the hands of the clock pointed to 2.42. Joe did a marathon to the terminal station with the checkerboard tucked under his arm, and when he hove in sight, the crowd was for him. Joe came down the station platform with all sails set and puffing like a motorboat engine with one lung gone. He plunged into one of the coaches, dropped the checkerboard in the grips, and muttered, Gee, was that a close call. Then Joe was justly peeved when the train hung up seven minutes in the station. Conway has close call. Charlie Conway came mighty near missing the train, too, though not as close as the trainer. Charlie was in good shape. In a steady lope from the Kimball house to the train, and without any excess baggage, got him there with two minutes to spare. 
Two coaches specially fitted up for the occasion and Pullmans at that were furnished by the railroad company for the Nationals' comfort, and every man jack of them had a seat to himself. After the train pulled out, some of them started a game of whist, others poker, and another lot tackled checkers. There were thirty-three persons in all checked in by the gatekeeper at the station. The Secret Service man mentioned above is Bill Nye, who has been manager of the Atlanta Automobile Speedway for the past two years, but is en route to Washington to see his former chief and receive his assignment of territory for a return to duty. The rest of the party were Mr. and Mrs. James McAleer, Mr. and Mrs. Tom Hughes, Assistant Secretary Billy Lemon, and several correspondents, Clyde Milan, Jack Lelovit, Harry Gessler, Charlie Conway, Andy Keefe, Warren Miller, Norman Elberfeld, George McBride, Bill Cunningham, John Henry, John Summerlot, Dave Bunting, Charlie Schaefer, William Conroy, Eddie Ainsmith, Charlie Street, Bob Groom, Dolly Gray, Dixie Walker, Doc Moyer, Fred Sherry, Harvey Bussey, and Bill Odie. Billy Lemon showed his importance, by the way. He walked up and down outside the train, watching the boys like he was a mother hen watching her brood of chickens. Billy was all smiles and is very doubtful if there was a single person in the party any happier over the prospects of returning to the capital than Billy. He's been talking about it for a week and has been checking the days off on his calendar. Morning was spent by the men getting ready to depart. It was so wet at the park that any kind of a workout was out of the question, and during the later forenoon and until time for the train to pull out, the rain came down in torrents. The boys had a great time at the clubhouse, and the Bowery Quartet of Gessler, Schaefer, Elberfield, and Ainsmith, those German boys, rendered several very pretty little ditties. Ah, the singing guys. Every man on the Washington Club, with the possible exception of Germany Schaefer, who is still suffering from a cold in his back, can be said to be in perfect shape and ready for the tap of the gong. Even Bill Cunningham, who reported overweight and was worked the hardest of any man on the squad, has, with the assistance of the rubber shirt brought into play, reduced to the proper fighting trim. Oh, man, they had to pull out the rubber shirt. Ooh. Uh, Milan, Mrs. Johnson. Clyde Milan was the only man in the party who was not in the best of humor over the prospect of returning home. Zeb missed Walter Johnson in the party and plainly showed the effects of the absence of Rumi. Zeb cannot be cheered up for any length of time, but he is certain that Walter and the club will eventually come to terms. Manager McAleer left the impression before he started for the train that Dolly Gray would be his selection to twirl the opening game against Boston. Dolly's in the best shape of any of the twirlers and has everything this year. Washington fans are going to be very agreeably surprised when they see him in action. As to the batting order for the opening game, it will probably be the same as the one the regulars have been using in the game games with the Shamrocks for the past week. Here it is. Milan, center field. Elberfield, third base. Lullevelt, left field. Cunningham, second base. Gessler, right field. McBride, shortstop. Henry, first base. Street catcher, Gray. 
pitcher. Manager Mackler has definitely decided upon using Henry at first base for his hitting. The Amherst lad pounding the pill for keeps all during the spring season and showing up and fielding in even better shape than Summerlot. Looks now like McAleer will keep Henry on the initial stack. Sack. Of the 28 men who came to Atlanta with the Nationals, four have gone elsewhere. Walter Johnson has returned to his home as the result of the ultimatum issued by McAleer. Doc Ralston sold to Columbus. Charlie Swain sold to Vancouver. And Fred Corbin left with Atlanta as ground rent man. To return to Atlanta, manager Jordan is very much pleased over the Nationals deciding to come back again next season. will make his spring training plans accordingly. He will not book many games with other big leaguers, but will play the Senators if McAleer is willing. Jordan insists the weather during the present spring has been the exception to the rule and that the teams will get into good shape in a week and will be able to play games right away. Manager McAleer made arrangements with Joe Kelly, manager of the Toronto club, while that team was in Atlanta for a series of games in Washington next spring, though no dates were set. The Nationals' boss is also contemplating arranging games with some of the National Leaguers and to have about two weeks of exhibition games at home before the season opens. Andy Keefe was carried back to Washington with the players, but upon the arrival of the club there, he will be sent to his home in Cleveland. Keefe was not, scrolling, 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 even signed up, but was brought to Atlanta by manager Mackler just for a trial without even the formality of signing a contract. Keefe should have no trouble whatsoever in signing with some minor league. No more developments in the Johnson case were recorded before the team left. When manager McAleer, when approached, manager McAleer said that the man, matter stood as it has ever since Johnson was sent home. McAleer expressed himself as regretting more than anyone else that the club and Johnson could not come to terms and said he hoped matters would be speedily adjusted in some manner. No member of the club seemed willing to converse on the matter it apparently being a sore subject with them, they feel Johnson's loss deeply. During the stay of the Washington team in Atlanta, they played 17 games, 15 games among themselves between their two squads, the regulars and the Shamrocks, and two with outsiders, one with Georgia Tech and one with Atlanta, both of which they won. In these games, Zeb Milan, the fast little center fielder, pulled out the best swatting record, an average of 364. Corbin, whom McAleer turned over to Atlanta, and Warren Miller, the young outfield, whom Atlanta came mighty near getting, tying up for second place honors with averages of 333. John Henry came next with 327. And Kid Elberfield next with 306. Charlie Street was the only other 300 hitter, his mark being just that. Milan leads with that. Milan made the greatest number of hits, 20. Henry was second with 18, and Corbin and Miller tied for third with 17 each. Milan also tallied the largest number of runs with 18. 
Henry was second with 14, and Corbin, McBride, and Cunningham tied for third with 11 each. Doc Gessler improved so much in his hitting during the past week that he climbed up over the 250 mark, but Jack Lelevelt's hitting has been the disappointment of the entire team, and he may find himself supplanted by either Miller or Conway if he does not pick up some in the first few games of the season. Um, let's see if there's anything interesting here. There is a list of all of the players at points, runs, hits, and percentages. Um, it's just tidbits. Uh, Milan led in both runs and hits. Uh, 55 at-bats, uh, which was only matched by a couple of players. 18 hits, uh, 18 runs on 20 hits. So he was pretty dang productive uh, mathematically here. And, uh, yeah, the pitchers did not hit so well as, uh, as evidenced here. Uh, a lot of o o o uh, o for 14, o for 13. Yeah. Manager Jordan announced today that Fred Corbin, the young Washington recruit who was left here as a ground rent man, would be played regularly in center field for the Atlanta club. He having decided that he is just the man for that position. Dick Jemison, sporting editor of the Constitution, is authorized by a committee of Atlanta fans to send to the Washington fans the following message. We are with you. And your club in the pennant race this season, you have a fine bunch of players and the most gentlemanly bunch that ever trained here. And, uh, well, sir, how we're going to do this, because there's so much more in this Sunday paper, is uh, we're going to do this in two parts, because... Uh, we've got all the reviews of the American League teams, as I said earlier, and there's also a bunch more squibs and bits that should be entered. I mean, are we in a hurry? We're taking, as long as we're doing this, I think the detail uh, is useful. Um, if anybody feels differently, certainly let me know. And uh, the, the, your thoughts will be taken into consideration. We're producing this on the fly. On any on a shoestring, literally, and um, in any case, if you have any comments or what have you, uh, contact me at kpqr.torc at gmail dot com. And uh, thanks for uh, sharing this uh, bit of uh, obscurest history, pop culture fun. And um, until the next time we meet, set the controls for the heart of the fun.